0: And, you know, I said to him, before you make an offer to me and before I think about accepting, can I work in the company for a week for free?
1: Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host Scott Cowan. So my guest today is is Howard Bihar. Um, first off, thank you for being patient with technology, Howard, as we got this sorted out so we could do this. I, <laughs> I, I I appreciate that, but I would love it if you would just tell our audience, Oops. tell our audience, uh, who, who, who who's giving you a call. Yeah, um, we're, no we're
0: tables.
1: Doesn't matter. Oh my right. gosh. I yeah. do. Oh my gosh. So I guess let's start with this question because you're known for Starbucks coffee. How did you, what was the process for you to get started at Starbucks? And, and we'll call that your introduction. So how did you get started working at Starbucks?
0: Well, I was about my mid forties and I, I needed a job. I, I I had been a president of a land development company, Seattle and And I started looking for a small company to buy. You know, I was trying to, you know, do something on my own. And I met Howard Schultz right out of the gate. And yeah. after I left this company and, and you know, we talked to each other, but what the, he didn't feel the it was right. And I was buy, trying to buy a company and a year passed and he was still looking for somebody to be VP of operations for the company. And, and, you know, I said to him, before you make an offer to me and before I think about accepting, can I work in the company for a week? for free. Let me okay. just work. And I, I worked in the plant. I worked in the stores. I worked on the trucks. And after that first week, I fell in love and I said, well, if you want me, I'd like to join Starbucks. And that's how it happened. I turned right instead of turning left. And uh, I never in my wildest dreams did I ever expect Starbucks to become what it's become. I mean, who could, could have predicted
1: that? So... I, now I have to ask a question because when I started at Starbucks, yeah. I, I I was brought in to work in the IT department. So, yeah. okay. One thing that I thought was amazing at that time, and maybe you were the root cause of it. They required us to go to coffee class. I had to take right. forty hours of coffee, right. and then I had to work. I do a shift in the store.
0: Right?
1: Was that a byproduct of your experience where you actually went worked in the plant? Oh, yeah. And-
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I I always felt that people needed to. I mean, the storage of where everything, where everything happened. It wasn't that all the rest of our work wasn't important. It was. IT was important. Accounting was important. Law, legals, All those things were important. But, but everything began and ended in the store. And you needed to understand the people that worked in the stores and the business itself. And that was the only way to do it.
1: Yeah, one memory that sticks out to me about my, my coffee training class was, first off, one of the reasons I wanted to work at Starbucks was because I love coffee. And yeah. so I was like, well, what better, what better place to work than a, a place that serves a lot of coffee? And you know, I've been told that, well, we won't, you know, I was, I was told I, when I went in for my interview and they gave me a tour of the building of the of the SSC and yeah, you know, the coffee centers on every floor. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. But I'm in this class and we're being taught, you know, the origins of coffee and all of this stuff, which was absolutely fascinating to me. And, and one, one person raises their hand and they go, I don't like coffee and i was just like how why are you here <laughs> i mean i was so funny to be like i don't like coffee and i'm like yeah. oh my gosh but for me that was that was an amazing part of the journey for me was but so that was a byproduct of your initial coming on board was you wanted to check the company out before yeah. you went for, and i think that's i think that's amazing how
0: could you know anything you know until you work in a place and you know, it gave me, I mean, after that week, I said, this is my place.
1: Okay. So from there, so you, 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 you joined the company and you, what was your job progression through from, from when you started to you ended up on the board of directors, right?
0: Well, it was at that time when I joined, there were 28 stores. So, you know, VP of operations was pretty VP of a pretty small company, you know, compared to how it grew. And, so my progression went from VP of operations to VP of sales and operations, where I had the retail business and the wholesale business reporting to me. And then I went to EVP and I had everything that uh, human resources and everything that touched the customer. Wow. Okay. And then I, became, um, uh, uh, I became president of, of Starbucks uh, North America. And then I became founding president of Starbucks International. And then I came back after I retired once. Well, then I went on the board when I became president of Starbucks North America. And then and then I retired once. It was too early for me to retire. And then, you know, by, you know, just out of sure, whatever luck, I guess you might say, I got the invitation to come back for a few months to be lead North America again as president. And uh, so it was kind of just... You know, I I grew as the company grew, you know, and I had to grow. I had to change a lot, you know. In the beginning, I could touch everything. After a while, I couldn't touch anything, you know, hardly. And so I realized that my day job was the people. My night job was the business. Okay. I focused, I just focused on the people side of the business. And, um, you know, first of all, growing me as a people and then helping, trying to grow the people in the organization.
1: So. In 2021, yeah. Starbucks is considered, you know, a global company. It's on it, all, all all outward facing um, indications are extremely successful and all of those things. We're not here to talk about that really, but but there was an article I read and I I thought this was fascinating. And at the time that you came on with only 28 stores, Starbucks was just located in Washington State or had they branched out yet into the Northwest or was it just in
0: uh, the month I joined, we opened in Portland
1: in Portland. Okay.
0: Yeah. I joined in August and September. We opened in Portland, but we already had a couple of stores in Vancouver, British Columbia, and a few Mm -hmm. stores in Chicago.
1: But okay. So you say Chicago, so that there was a reference though, that you ended up moving to Chicago. Yeah. So you, I, I moved for
0: three months because Chicago was losing money and, and the venture capital money was saying, Hey, you know, this is just a Northwest deal. This isn't going to work anyplace else because Chicago was losing money. So I said, I got to figure it out. So the only way I knew how to do it is to go work, work in the stores. And that's what I did every day for three months. And um, and it's because I wanted to experience firsthand what was going on and see if there was a difference. And I came back from that experience saying that the problem is that people don't know us in Chicago. We need to open more stores. That was number one. Number two, we needed to raise prices because our costs of operating in Chicago were a hell of a lot higher than operating in Seattle. But what I sensed is, is that the people that were coming into the store were the same kind of people that were coming into the stores in Seattle. They were saying the same thing. They appreciated the same thing. So I had confidence that it was going to work. We just had to make some adjustments. And we opened a bunch of new stores and that started the beat more in Chicago. And we raised prices and that helped offset the
1: uh, the increased costs. How did you get the venture capitalists though, who say it's a Northwest thing and you come back to them and say, okay, what's well, going to work, but we need more stores. How did you guys, how did Starbucks can, how did you guys manage that?
0: Well, you know, just by raising the prices that helped us a lot to okay. matching the costs of doing business there. But, you know, we had still had cash so we could open stores. So we just opened about 10 stores and, Boom! It just took off.
1: It just took off. Okay. Yeah. I, I when I read that that you I was so impressed that you went to Chicago to ensure that you did everything you could to ensure the Chicago the Chicago market was going to be successful. The only way
0: I know how to do things is to do them hands on, to be there to help, to do it. You know, doing it from a distance doesn't work.
1: Then you were instrumental in opening up the international markets for Starbucks. Yeah. Correct. I can't imagine that it went flawlessly. (laughs) I I have to imagine that there were, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, but I, what in, there must be a story that you can share. What, what surprised you about opening in the international, the, the thought might've went better or worse, but it, the, the, you were surprised by it.
0: Well, I, I guess I don't know if I would call it surprise. I was um, I was unprepared for. Um, I was always a relationship person, you know, always a people guy. But I was unprepared for how deep that was in, and particularly the Asian markets that okay. we went to first. And Jin Long Wang, who was my right arm, you know, he was from China, and and he he sent me a quote one day he said big noise on stairs nothing coming down you know he was talking about me you know and uh so i had to adjust my expectations things weren't going to move as fast as i thought they wanted should move and so i had to understand that the most important thing i was going to do there was build relationships and that may take time to do it and so i had to change myself the other thing uh that one thing that did surprise me was the difficulty in many markets of opening stores. I mean, every country has its own stuff. You know, we have our own blocks. You know, we have our own protection mechanisms and every country had its own. And Japan being our first market had a lot of them that were unwritten. A lot of them, you just had to learn them as you went. And no, nobody would necessarily tell you about them until you asked the question. And, you know, we had it like the espresso machine, La Marzocco, that we imported from Italy. In mm-hmm. order to get that into Japan, we had to basically tear it apart, have every screw tested, all the metal tested, everything, all the plastics that were in that thing tested, right, in order to get it imported. And, you know, not that there was anything wrong with it or anything. It was a piece of machinery, but those were part of the rules. And so, yeah, I pushed back on that in the beginning, but I wasn't going to change that. And I finally said, I can't push back. we got to be the best at this. we got to be better than the Japanese companies are at complying with all the rules and the regulations. And so once we got used to doing that, we did that in every country, and that helped us. So that was probably the biggest surprise, is how difficult it was going to be. I, I, I didn't think that would be the issue. I thought opening stores would be easy. Getting open would be easy. But the difficulty would be attracting the customers. But it was the opposite.
1: Just the Customers room.
0: came rolling in. And, uh, you know, but opening stores, particularly at the beginning of it, was difficult.
1: So I'd like to clarify something. So when you said you had to have the machine tested, did just one machine or did you have to have each machine that was brought? Just one. Okay. Okay. I was going to say, wow.
0: Basically, we had, they wanted to know what was in each part, you know, what was in the metal, what was, you know.
1: Wow. Okay. I, I would not have guessed that. I would have thought that. I, when I think of Japan, I think of tea is yeah. the culture and I would have thought that maybe coffee, but I also, when I was working there and we were opening up the, you know, it was obvious that the Jap- Japanese market was, they were, they embraced Starbucks. Well, yeah. I mean, Japan I mean,
0: was a big coffee consuming country. It was like yeah. third or fourth in the world. It, it, they wow. had these stores called Kisatan, which basically where men went to consume coffee and smoke cigarettes. And, mm-hmm. and coffee was very important there. The quality of their coffee was really good, and um, and there were other competitors kind of like us uh, that were already open there. And you know, we had a different point of view, and and we just believed. And I believed. I believed that Japan was work. I was scared. You know, I was I was I wasn't betting the company, but but I was betting my reputation because I chose Japan as a first okay. market. And and so, but it worked. You know, amazing.
1: So, so there was also a story that I read. So one of the things when I, you know, my timeline at Starbucks was, um, when Frappuccino was rolled out right. and I was reading a story once again, you hands on, you were down in Southern California visiting a store yeah. as I, this is what I read. So I'm going to ask you to yeah. validate my, my story. I read that you were, I think I want to say Santa Monica.
0: That's right. It was.
1: Third Street. Park. And you walked, and it, as as the article read, you walked in and you asked somebody, and we'll say the manager, why there was a blender in the store.
0: Yeah, it wasn't quite like so that. It was actually okay. it was Dina Campion had invited me down to visit. She was the district manager down there, and I went to visit her, and she took me on a tour of our stores because we had just had a few stores at that time, and then on a tour of some competitor stores. And one of the competitor stores, she brought me a drink. And she said, you know, we're getting people coming into our store every day asking for a drink like this. We have nothing like it. And so I said, really? How many drinks do you think we could sell a day? She said, oh, at least 30 per store per day. That was pretty good because these drinks were like three, four bucks a drink. Right. I said, I said, that's a great idea. Let me take it back to Seattle and see if I can't get people to agree that we should test something like this. And I took it back to Seattle. There was complete rejection of us doing it because it wasn't coffee. Coffee. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, Dina was disappointed. I was disappointed, but I let it go. And then Dina called me back about a month later after I'd reject, we'd rejected it. Said, Can you come down and visit again? And so I went down and visited her again. And I, she said, go sit down on one of the bar stools, which I did. And she brought me three little sample cups. And she said, try these. And I took a sip. And th- I said, Dina, this tastes remarkably like the drink we tried at the competitor store. And I said, how did you do this? And she says, well, we went and bought the blenders. We bought the nonfat milk solids. We bought the chocolate. We did, bought everything and we fiddled with it. And we came up with this drink. And I said, are you trying to get me fired? You know, (laughs) know, and she said, no, but we have to test this. We're getting about 30 to 40 people a day coming in. This is killing us. You know, we, we just have, they just walk out when we don't have anything like it. So I, you know, it's one of those things that you do sometimes, in life, you know, you have to make a decision that goes against the grain or goes against somebody else's deal. And I always believe as long as you're not poisoning anybody or not breaking laws that you ought to be able to try things. So I said, OK, try it, but don't tell a soul. No signage up on top. You can your baristas can talk about it. you can have little signs on the counter or something like that. I try it. And I want you to call me every night and tell me how it's going, because if it's not going well, we're going to get rid of it real quick or somebody finds out, particularly Schultz. So it just started, and she not only sold thirty drinks a day, but by the by the third week, she was uh, selling seventy drinks a day per store. That was huge. And I'm thinking to myself, I am a brilliant guy, you know. But it was Dina Campion that made it happen. It wasn't me. All I did was was give her cover to do it. And and so then I brought after we had that, I said we got to we got to roll this out. So I I brought her her and her team up to Seattle. And call another meeting, and Howard Schultz came in the head of marketing, guy named George. And George was the one that really didn't want it. And so I I had to bring in the sample cups, and everybody tried it, and and George got really mad at me. said, Howard, I'm the head of product development. You're not. I told you we weren't going to do this. You stop this now. And I looked at Howard. I said, give me 90 days. If you don't like it in 90 days, if you just don't like the smell, we'll get rid of it. And I've been in retail long enough, if something's selling, you never get rid of it. Howard hated it. He, I mean, he was for the same reason. He didn't think it was coffee, and it wasn't. Frappuccino, we put coffee in it, but also we sold it without coffee. And he, he, you know, and it was blended. He didn't think we should do it. I mean, I I remember, I mean, the arguments we had over it, you know, and, you know, but it it became 20% of our sales at one time.
1: What I remember was it in my opinion it oh, it it gave the stores an a pm in the afternoon yeah, that's what it did people people came in they might not have come, they might have gone into starbucks and grabbed their morning cup of coffee on the way to work maybe go back in the lunchtime but after lunch they the stores were pretty empty yeah and this brought more more you know it sold yeah. and and then not only that it's it's a massive line of, of products for the company yeah, now. you so. we a little
0: younger. That made a difference too. So we attracted younger high school, mm-hmm. college, you know, kids coming in to get that drink. And yeah, I mean, be, it was a blowout success without a question.
1: So that brings me to the question I warned you about before I pushed yeah, record. Okay. When I started there, there was a product that had launched and had failed quite quickly. And personally, I loved it. What is your opinion on Mozagron?
0: Mozagron. I have a bottle of Mazagran uh, and, you know, those things that you bury in Plex glass, it's solid. Yeah. And I have uh-huh. it sitting on my desk, not here, but in, my, in Seattle. And I look at that thing every day and I remind myself how from great failure can come great success. We all thought that product was going to be a blowout success. We did research. It was a joint venture with Pepsi. The bottle was beautiful. It was a coffee cola. I mean, it went out and three weeks later, it, we knew it was dead. We liked it, but nobody else liked it, you know? And, and so, but it spawned frappuccino, bottled frappuccino, right? Without that, we wouldn't have thought about doing bottled frappuccino. Bottled frappuccino has been a great success. So, you know, you try things, it doesn't work, you go on, you know, from failure comes success.
1: Thank you for that. Because I, one of my questions I'd love to ask guests are, you know, what did you think was a great idea that didn't work? Because you almost always learn some valuable lesson. Absolutely. And, and I remember when I first started there, somebody gave me a bottle of this and they said, try it. I think it was like a hazing thing. Like they were thinking I was going to spit it out and be like, I really liked
0: it. Well, a lot of us liked it, but it, I really liked it. And I'm like Shantico, that chocolate, it was hot chocolate. Uh, like oh yes. A little cup and it was yes. like drinking a, uh, a, 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 a chocolate bar while he melted. And we loved it. We thought it was fantastic. Hey, people! It was it was it was a good product. Both these products were good product, but there was just no acceptance for them for two different reasons. But you know, so what?
1: But like you said, out of the 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 Grand came the the seed of bottled frappuccino. Yeah, exactly. And also, wasn't it how they? Um, well, I don't, we won't go we won't go down the technical rabbit hole on that. But that was my question to you, and I thank you. I couldn't have expected a, a more amazing answer from you. Another question I like to ask my guests, and I jokingly say, and I, and I hope you appreciate this. I jokingly ask the question: Where's your favorite place, or what's the best? Co- what's your favorite cup of coffee? If you know, if you're a coffee drinker, and I always jokingly say, please don't say Starbucks, just because it's such the answer. But with you, I'm going to expect that you're going to say Starbucks. But I'm going to, so I want to change my question to you. Where's your favorite Starbucks location?
0: My favorite Starbucks location. Boy, that's a hard question to answer because I, you know, I've been involved in so many openings of stores and they all have their different drum beat. They all are unique Mm -hmm. in their own way. Oh, let's see. What would I say my favorite Starbucks location would be?
1: Or let me, let me, yeah, maybe let me take you off the hook and let not say your favorite. Let's say you
0: don't have to take me off the hook.
1: Okay, say, you're on the hook.
0: say Shibuya in Japan.
1: Okay, so why is that?
0: Because it was the most difficult store to make work. It had only 900 square feet of service area, and we had to do 2,000 customers a day through 900 square feet. And the difficulty, of that's where we put the first semi-automated espresso machines in, you know, and we had to do it. We didn't have a choice, you know. So it's, it's not because it's somehow more beautiful than the rest. It's that it was a challenge to do. It's, uh, where we broke some more rules by putting in those semi-automated espresso machines that Schultz hated. And, mm-hmm. and it worked in 900 square feet. It was amazing. Okay. And so it, it, it's, it's for that reason. I have other stores that I think are just incredibly beautiful. And, and, you know, that, uh, usually for me though, it's always the people. That's okay. so always the one I'm closest to. Like I live right now, I'm up in, you know, Anacortes. So uh, there's a store in downtown Anacortes and one in Burlington. Uh, that, those two stores I go to. So I love the people in there because, you, you know.
1: So when you, when you go to the Anacortes or Burlington store, what are you ordering?
0: A triple tall Americano double cup, no room.
1: Very specific. Yeah, I like
0: that. That's what I drink. You can count on one, I, you know, frappuccino, I pushed it. All that stuff. I probably have drinking three frappuccino in my life, right? I, <laughs> I used to drink cappuccinos, you know, okay. and I still do once in a while, but hardly ever. I never drank lattes and I okay. never drank mochas or anything like that ever. I mean, I'd had them, wow. I'd sipped them, but I, to try them, but I, but I, I'm a black coffee drinker. And my I, favorite coffee is Ethiopian Harar.
1: So when you're at home, are you, how do you prepare? Do you drink coffee at home? Yeah, absolutely. I okay. How, okay. <laughs> how do you prepare your coffee at home? What I do a you. have espresso
0: machine and I make okay. Americanos. Okay. Yeah. I have a really nice Jura espresso machine and it's an amazing piece of equipment and uh, it does a great
1: job. Okay. How are you, how do you feel about the uh, Clover machines?
0: I like. I mean, I think Clover is good. I mean, you know, it's Clover was just an automated way of of doing a really clean press pot. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, where they took out, all the grounds were taken out and everything. It's just really, really clean. You know, it's. Yeah. uh But I, you know, I like it. I think it produces an interesting cup of coffee. It's not my cup of coffee. It's too clean okay. for me. I, 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 I want it. I want it. I want it to a little
1: bit you know a little granulated yeah okay so So when we moved to wenatchee um from the tacoma area yeah years ago first time we came over here yeah stopped at starbucks and i was you can ask my wife she was like oh he's like a kid because the wenatchee one of the wenatchee locations has a clover machine and i was like oh my god tacoma didn't have any that i knew of at that time and um i always just thought the clover was a, a fascinating um way of bringing and presenting other coffees too. That no, was the I thing about it.
0: We could do it, you know, an expensive way to make a cup of coffee. It was one coffee at a time, one one cup, but, but it's, uh, but it was, it's really, it's good. It's really, it's interesting. I mean, they're, they're, you know, you do it's not going to discolor your teeth. You know what I mean? <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. So let me ask you, have you ever been to, uh, is it on Pike or Pine, the roastery uh, location? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I I describe that as coffee meeting Las Vegas and Disneyland and smashed together. Yeah, exactly. I think if I lived in Seattle, that is not where I would go to have a cup of coffee. I would absolutely visit it, but I would not go there to have a cup of coffee. But the absolute, my most favorite, not only coffee experience, but food experience came from sitting at the counter. And uh, the, the barista's name was Lincoln. He was from Spokane. I'm sitting there with my friend, Jim hunger, who uh, I met when I started working at Starbucks and we're having a siphon press. Yeah. Each of us had a siphon press mm-hmm. and somebody, they walked by with a tray and a, in a highball glass with a one ice cube in it and coffee. And I'm like, what's that? And he goes, Oh, that's our whiskey aged Guatemalan or something to that effect. Right. I go, I'd like one of those, please. Yeah. I had no idea what I was about to experience. It was the most magical food experience I've ever had in my life. It was absolutely delicious. And I'm like I said, I'm there with my friend, Jim, we're walking around. I see that the coffee is for sale. And since I'm staying with my friend, Jim, and his mother's a friend of mine, I said, I'd like. You know, it was in half pound bags. I said, I'd like two pounds, two pounds, please. So I bought four bags mm-hmm. and I didn't check that it was $80 a pound uh, <laughs> I Had a little sticker shock. Yeah. And I must say, I gave the coffee to them. I, you know, each gave them a half a pound and then I came home and I was trying to make coffee at home with it. And I, I failed miserably, yeah. but I will say that that is my absolute favorite food experience in my world. Do you... I, and I know that those were created after your, your time being active there, but those are almost like amusement parks or coffee fans. Yeah, they they? Are, no
0: question there. I mean, they're so interesting, very expensive to build, you know, and uh, I, think, I can't and imagine why it's complex and uh, you know, but, but, you know, it, it, it sends a message. People, people love it. And it's that store is busy all the time. I'm always amazed. I hardly ever go there once and only if I have a, Somebody, a friend coming into town, you know, I take them up there to see it, show them that story.
1: The one I'd like to see is the the one in Chicago.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's like four stories or something.
1: Four stories. I was like. Yeah. And I, oh I know that
0: building well. That was a, that was a crate and barrel building.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So during your time at Starbucks, you know, you, you now are doing, you've written two books. Yeah. You, you have, you know, servant leadership, conscious capitalism. You talk about one hat. Yeah. How did you, how did you develop those concepts? And I don't, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, I don't think conscious capitalism. You coined that. I didn't but, find that phrase. It was John McKee from Whole Foods. So, but how, how did your time at Starbucks lead you to the these?
0: Uh, I what well, I brought it with me. You brought it with me. Yeah, you. I, Aiden. It, um you know i was 40 when i joined Starbucks I was 44 years old i was pretty well formed i'd been studying servant leadership for at that time 20 years okay. and uh from you know Robert greenleaf uh, coined the term servant leadership and um so you know i tried i wanted to be a conscious competent at servant leadership i wanted to be able to understand it i want to be able to teach it and mm-hmm. so i brought that with me and that's what i tried to drive at Starbucks I just believe that that was a way to lead an organization is that you served your people first before you expected them to serve you. And so, you know, I, that was really important to me. And I was relentless about it. You know, I just, one of the advantages I had was I had a lot of responsibility in a small company and I could, uh, I could make things happen there, you know, and, so I did. And I, I was not, you know, I wasn't going to let go of that because it was what mattered to me. Uh, before I joined Starbucks, you know, I was looking to, like I told you, I was looking to buy a company and I had uh, this list of all the things that I wanted inside this company that I was going to buy, what, how I wanted to operate it. Everybody got to vote, you know, in their own area of expertise and give input in any area, any area. And that I turned that into the person who sweeps the floor should choose the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that everybody would get equity in the company, that everybody would, would be an owner of the company. And, uh, and Howard and I agreed on all those things, and that's what made me want to be there, you know. And, you know, we had certainly different management styles and, and different views of how to lead, you know, that were, were, were sometimes conflicting. I mean, really con- <laughs> conflicted, but, but you know, it, it's, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to run a company like that. And so that's what we drove and Oren was that way too.
1: Well, and certainly in during my time there, that was the culture, that was the culture. Yeah. And it was unlike anything I would experienced. Um, cause I started there in 97. Yeah. And so I was in my mid thirties and I started off, um, I was probably one of the, the first non Starbucks managers to be in the it in the help desk in the it department. So I wasn't, I was definitely an outsider yeah. at first Yeah, and that didn't last very long in the sense that I was, um, yeah, the culture there, it was great. It was, and it was, it was, um, I don't know deeply embedded in all the all the partners yeah, on that part. it, they, they, they believed it. it
0: I mean that was what I say the people were my day job the business was my night job you know, there became a point in time where that is what I focus on period and you know I gave the same speech a thousand different times in a thousand different ways but always it said people first copy second and um, and you know you could it was hard to get fired at Starbucks for missing your numbers. It was easy to get fired at Starbucks if you messed with the people. And, uh, you know, and I, that is still important to this day. You know, it hasn't been a perfect place. It's been, it's had its ups and it's had its downs and we've made lots of mistakes along the way and didn't, didn't, didn't uh, treat, always treat people as well as we should have. And, you know, I regret those times, but for the most part, we self-corrected, you know, Mm -hmm. we self-corrected and. And you know I'm proud of the company. I mean, I I I am really proud of how they handled COVID. I mean, they you know they kept baristas on. They kept kept everybody kept their health care benefits even when they weren't working. Mm-hmm. Know, they paid people for a long period of time when they weren't working. They did everything they could to to help people through it. And that not very many companies did that. And I'm proud of that.
1: No, they, they you're right, and that's something to be proud of. What was your motivation to becoming an author?
0: Hmm. I wasn't really that motivated. I had, there was, uh, um, there were two women that worked for the company. One headed up marketing for international. Another one was a consultant that we'd use. And they kept saying, I have these quotes on my wall. You know, I was famous for having hundreds of quotes on my office wall. And they'd come in and say, why don't we put these all into a book? And I said, you're kidding me. I can't write. I don't write. I mean, my English teacher would have said the only reason I would ever have my name on a book is if I had written it there myself. So somebody known whose it was. <laughs> they kept saying, do it. And, I, and they just drove me nuts. And I finally said to them, if you're so interested in me writing a book, why don't you write it for me? <laughs> so they started the process of doing that. And I had kept, uh, through my whole career, I had had this file that it grew over time. It finally got to I mean, really about a foot thick. Wow. I'd put little notes in there, just ideas that came to me, quotes that I'd seen, thoughts that I had. Sometimes they were little scraps of paper into this file, and so that became the framework for the book. I took that file and I started throwing them on the floor in in different piles for different subjects, you know, different. Okay, piles. and those became the chapters of the book, and that's how it started. And one of them got pregnant, and and moved on, and the other one. Uh, got a big consulting agreement, didn't have time to do it. And so here I was left with the beginning of this book and I hired somebody that they introduced me to a woman named Janet Goldstein, who really was the writer. I mean, we did it together, but I, I was not even close to her skills. And, um, but what I had were the ideas and right. I had the stories and the, and what it was. And so that's how it came. I would never call myself a writer. I, I got better at it as time went on than the second book still had a lot of help but but I got better at it. I'm starting to work on a third book right now.
1: You are so what can you share what sure. the
0: yeah the- it's basically I've been posting on LinkedIn and Twitter for five years now every day. So okay. I've got thousands of these items and so we're gonna take probably a hundred of them and put them in a book and put stories with each the most fav- my most favorite ones and the ones that the people like the best. And tell stories behind them, where they came from, and what they're about. And
1: may I put you on the spot and ask you to give an example?
0: Uh, well, let's see. What would be? Um, what would be one? I haven't even. You know, you're I'm, you're way ahead of me on it. Uh, well, let's take the person who sweeps the floor should choose the broom. Okay, it came from because growing up, I when I was working, I had this tremendous desire to matter. I wanted to make a difference. And I wanted to be respected for that that idea that I mattered and that my ideas mattered. And I always felt that other people should too. And so, you know, I always believe that if you go out and you hire somebody, you know, give them room, let them fly, you know, tell them what you expect from them, you know, tell them why we're here, what's the purpose of this place. And But don't tell them how to do their job, get out of their way and knock the hurdles down. And so, those, it's those kind of stories. And those things, Frappuccino, that's how Frappuccino came about was, you know, the person, it was Dina and her broom, basically, you know, she had goals to accomplish and her idea was she had to grow the business. And this was a way of growing the business. And so it's those kinds of things that we're going to do. Okay. It, it's going to be a simple book, you know, cause I, I'm a simple person. And, uh, it, it's uh it's going to be a fun read it's going to be one of those things that you can sit down in your toilet and probably read in a night and and then you go back over it saying hey i like this one i want to learn more about this
1: <laughs> okay well we'll just i hope i hope my editor doesn't lead that with the we always start off the episodes with a quote from the episode you know where we'll take a snippet let's not lead with the, that one okay um and, i just think the magic cup. Yeah. I just finished that. Actually, I finished that yesterday. Yeah. What inspired you to write that? Anger. Okay.
0: I, I left Star when I retired from Starbucks, I was angry. I was angry at Howard and I was angry because we did all those layoffs that I didn't think that we needed to do. And, and, um, I was just angry about a lot of things about that. And, and over time I let it go, but it, that's where it started. It, I just, you know, that was the idea of the pink slip floating down from heaven and the board of directors not knowing what was going on, a guy that was running the company not caring. It wasn't that Howard didn't care, he did. But but I was angry at him. And that's where it came from. And it was, uh, it it's I was depressed for two years after I left Starbucks. Uh, <clears throat> because, you know, I always just say to people, Starbucks is not you and you're not it. But I fell into the trap. It was me. And it mattered to me as much as it mattered to Howard. And, and so it came out of there and I wanted to write, I wanted to write, uh, you know, fiction, but that was really based in truth.
1: All mm-hmm. of
0: that book is based. It's, it's fiction. It's where Harry Potter meets business, so to speak. But it was all about leadership. It was all about this idea that you care about your people, that, you know, that you don't tell people lies. You don't, you know, you don't do layoffs when they're not necessary. You don't, you know, you do the right thing, and and the you know the boogeyman of the spider chasing—that's you, your fear. That's what it is—is is fear. They're not real. Mm-hmm. I went through all those layoffs. That was just fear. That was reacting, being fearful of what we thought was wrong when it wasn't what it was. You know, Howard thought that it was it was operations that was at fault. He said there's something wrong with operations. I don't know if you were there then, but but uh, I was not. But he. He wanted to change a whole bunch of things. You know, there were about 10 things and I won't go through them all. And, but it wasn't those things. It wasn't the problem. I mean, were the stores dirtier maybe in some places? Yeah, of course. You know, those things happen, but, and it wasn't the people. It was the economy, stupid. And we just felt it earlier than other people did. That's all. And that's what it was. And, and so it was came out of that spot. And I was trying to tell the story, you know, about that. It wasn't just about Starbucks. It was about other times, you know, other places I'd been to and other people I'd reported to
1: my life. You grew up in the Seattle area. You spent most of your life in the Northwest. Yeah. Correct, Correct. Yeah. So when you, when, so when you're not, well, what do you do for fun and excitement? What, what about the, what about the Northwest do you find to be enjoyable? The water. The
0: Puget okay. Sound, the San Juan Islands, uh, the Gulf Islands of Canada, uh, being I, I'm live right on the water in Puget Sound and up by Annette, of course. I have a little 20 foot skiff. And as soon as crab season opens, I'm out there every day.
1: You're out there every on day on my
0: beach. I dig clams. You know, I'm not so much of a fisherman anymore. I still fish once in a while, but, but it's that it's the sheer beauty of it. And it's the water. I just love it.
1: And has has that always been true for you? Or yeah, is that pretty something- much.
0: Pretty much. My okay. father was a great fisherman, and he used to take me when I was five years old. And in those days, uh, Elliott Bay, you'd go out in Elliott Bay, and you'd go out about just at daybreak. And by 11 o'clock in the morning, you had 12 fish, silvers, right? Wow. That bay was full of salmon. And then we'd go up to the south end of Woodby Island, fish uh, possession point no point. We'd fish out in front of Edmonds. We'd fish up Bush Point, which is on the west side of Woodby Island. And, and so, you know, we'd go, we'd stay on Woodby Island for the summer every year, you know, and okay. big clams. And I mean, just, it's that. I've always been a test. I've always had a boat of
1: some kind. You, you've always had a boat. So what was your favorite boat? Um, was, there, the last, was there one that was... Yeah, that the to, last
0: boat. It was a 73-foot Ocean Alexander. And it was a kind of a trawler style and it was a fantastic boat. And I had a stroke and I, and, um, and I just, it overwhelmed me running, running the boat. And I said, it's time to sell it. And so we we just said, we'll get a place in the water instead of having a
1: boat. So the 73 foot boat, that's really, to me, that's a very large boat. boat, Yeah. Did you captain it yourself? My wife and I
0: ran that boat. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to, (sighs) I didn't want to go for a ride, you know? I wanted to run the boat, and so you know, I, did I work on all of it? No, but I could change the oil, and I could I could troubleshoot all sorts of problems. I could keep us from sinking, which it almost did once. Yeah. really. Yeah, I made lots of mistakes. One time, I ran it aground up in Alaska.
1: You know. Okay, can what, what, do? You mind sharing yeah, how did I you used to do you know,
0: that? No, boater. I was looking on the charts, and there was this. I was trying to get back to Ketchikan, and there was this pass called Rocky Pass. Now I know why it's called Rocky Pass. So I said, well, okay, I see how it's charted and it was marked. And I thought I can do this. I can get through there. It was I knew it was going to be tight, but I think I can do it. So I pull in and we anchor outside Rocky Pass the night before and I get up in the morning, I'm getting the boat ready to go. And And I was looking at the tide charts and looking at the time and I misjudged the time by two hours. Okay. It was a lot shallower than I thought it was going to be, so I started going down Rocky Pass, and all of a sudden, one of my one of my engines shuts down, and my boat hits sand. So the the prop it hit a hit a rock, and it, when that happens, it just shuts the engine down. So okay. I said, "Oh shit!" So then, what <laughs> am I going to do now? So I waited until the tide came up, and I tried to back out. The other prop hits a rock. So now I'm in trouble. I got one prop that I can get, and I'm trying to get out of. Finally, I got out of there, and I limped back to catch again. And thirty thousand dollars later, trying to fix the bottom of the boat and fix the props, which were never right. I had to get back to Seattle to get them remade. And but that, so you know, that was uh, you know, dumb, 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 dumb and dumber.
1: Oh my gosh! Oh wow! Uh, all right. Besides the water, what what is what else do you and your and your and your wife like to do? Uh, what's entertaining for you? Well, these
0: days? Entertaining for me today. Uh, oh God! You know, I'd like to tell you that I'm a real hobbyist. I'm not. I never have been. Okay. My hobby. is That's okay. To walk the malls and look at what's going on in retail. I like that. Uh, you know, I think spending time with my <laughs> grandkids. I like to do that. spending time with my wife and this last year we've never spent this kind of time amount of time together we've never cooked as many meals at home as we we did this last year but we did and so i like that i like to go for walks on the beach i like to you know go for walks with the dogs my dogs are that changed my life these two dogs are i got them after my my doctor said you need a dog you need to slow down you know okay you're gonna kill yourself and so i got the first dog and Certainly changed my life. And then we got the second one. to really changed my life. And they're my buddies, you know? That's, so.
1: And are your are, are your grandkids in the area? Yeah, my kids both live in,
0: uh, Med- in Madrona area of Seattle. Okay. And so, and I have six grandkids. And so okay. one is graduating from high school, getting ready to go-, go to college. The oldest one is going to college already. And then I've got four more.
1: Yeah. My, my two grandchildren live in Europe, so I don't get to see them very often, but it's, you get to, with technology now we can do do what you.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. could do that, but now. now You
1: You said something, you said you like to walk the mall and look at retail. Yeah. And so what I'm about to ask you, you would say the logic, your answer will be, you wouldn't do it, but play along. If you were going to open a business today, what would it be?
0: So I was going to open a business today, I mean, it's product, you mean, or?
1: Yeah, well, just, you know, looking, you're, the way you're looking at the world, yeah. what you, you see things through your eyes. Yeah. What would you do?
0: That would be something to do with food, not necessarily really? a restaurant. I think there's a real opportunity for a, a miniature store in neighborhoods, like 7-Eleven, okay. but not a 7-Eleven. It's high quality. It's pre-prepared meals. Uh, okay. or, you know, where you could carve off a piece of turkey that was in the cake or something. It would, you know, it'd be small, easy to get through, but, you know, and we're starting to see them pop up. If you go to New York, you see them, you know, okay. and, and you certainly see them all over Europe. I think that's a wave of the future. I think we're going to be doing a lot more of that. And we're not, you know, I think this home delivery thing is going to be problematic for, because the cost of doing it is huge. and 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 the companies that are doing it are basically doing it on the backs of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that isn't going to last. And so now if you order pizza online, I've done, I mean, I, for $20 pizza, I've paid over 40 bucks by the time it gets to my house. You know, it's, I just don't see how people are con- continue to afford it or why they would do it. I'm not going to do it. You know, I'll go mm-hmm. pick it up, you know, you know, for 20 bucks, I can spend 15 minutes, you know, or whatever it is, or, or I can walk down sure. the street, or whatever it happens to be. But but I think this idea of a, just a little neighborhood kind of uh, high quality uh, convenience place to go get meals, Okay. or a, a nice bottle of wine, or you know something like that.
1: So kind of, I mean, for lack of a you know, not to, but like a whole, a small, a, a yeah. convenience model like a Whole yeah, Foods, like a whole, but, yeah, but a whole, like really
0: food. small. They don't sell. They don't sell soap. They don't,
1: you know, they, right. right.
0: They're not selling, literally They're, they're not yeah. selling toilet paper. It's not that kind of place. It's focused around
1: food. Okay. What else when you walk, when you walk the mall, what else are you noticing? And, Cause I don't go to the mall. Yeah. This is, that's one thing I've never been a mall fan. Yeah. So I'm curious, what's your observations of walking through the mall? I don't know when the last time you walked yeah. through a mall, when was the last time you walked through? A
0: mall? Oh, about a
1: month ago. Okay. What? what what have you noticed what did you observe when you walk through does retail in the in the mall space seem healthy to you no, or is not, it no, no not at
0: all it's not i okay. it's um i don't there's not you know there's this lack of the pro, you know the internet has really changed the retail and amazon without a question has really changed retail and I, I think what you, you see in the mall is l- less help than you used to see. You walk into a store, it's hard to find somebody to help you. Uh, uh, there are not very many creative stores. Things, you know, the problem with the Internet and Amazon is they're great at transaction. They're very, they're not very good at bringing you something that's unique. Or that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, it's and so, you know, it used to be you'd go to the mall and you'd shop and you'd say, wow, look at that. You don't get that experience very often anymore.
1: You'd walk past it's like Too a- much
0: sameness, 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 you know. And I was on the board of The Gap for about eight, eight years. And I, I used to always say, you, you can't make it. You, you can't. Build, you have no soul if all it is is about 70% off. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why are you here? What are you here to do? And. And you know, I think these big, the big chains, particularly in retail, have to fewer stores but more creativity.
1: You know. Okay. Yeah. I remember growing up as a kid going and going to say Frederick and Nelson yeah, right. in downtown Seattle. Oh man, yeah. And me too. And and looking, you know, looking at the windows. Yes. And yeah. the displays were amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. And and now when I walk through the mall, I see what you're saying. And I also see a lot of 30% Mm -hmm. off closing soon or clearance this, this, you know, I've got to
0: leave you. I'm sorry. No,
1: no, I, I, we've run over our time again. Thank you very much. I appreciate you um, sharing what you've shared and I uh, am looking forward to the third opportunity.
0: I love your style. You're a, you're a gentle soul. Well,
1: thank you for that. Yeah. You have a wonderful day.
0: Okay. Take care, buddy.
1: Okay. Right. Take care. Thanks. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.